It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm David Drucker, a senior writer with the Dispatch, and welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Our guest this week, Peter Rao. He's a senior fellow and director, Center on Europe and Eurasia at the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank in Washington. This week, we decided to have Peter on so we could have a discussion about nuclear weapons and the threat they pose in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and escalating competition between the United States and China and all things related to nuclear weapons. so much for joining us here at the dispatch thanks for having me it's an honor to be with you we wanted to have you on to discuss the prospects of nuclear war (laughs) and I, i don't mean to be flippant about it but it's just not something i think a lot of americans have talked about in the past yeah 20 to 30 years i'm a child of the cold war i can remember when this was a constant topic of discussion would the united states and the soviet union end up in a nuclear conflagration Uh, because diplomacy failed, because one thing led to another, and there were lots of concerns about it. Uh, The U.S. obviously wins the Cold War, the Soviet Union disintegrates, and not until recently with Russia's invasion of Ukraine has this become a topic of regular discussion Uh, once again. There are concerns on the right and the left in the United States that the more the United States does to help the Ukrainians resist Russia's invasion, the more we lead a global coalition uh, to help Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky resist Vladimir Putin's invasion, the likelier it is or the more possible it is that we end up in a nuclear war or nuclear confrontation of some sort. How realistic is this today based on conditions on the ground in Europe? Well, one shouldn't take it lightly, and I think it's correct for policymakers to I don't want to say hand wring or worry, but to think through the implications of our strategy in Ukraine for nuclear escalation. Nuclear weapons really are the top end of military strategy, of deterrence, of international relations. And so it is a deadly serious topic. But I think the analytical mistake that uh, we've made over the past year of the war is to uh, link progress on the ground to the potential for nuclear escalation. I think the Kremlin's calculations are actually different. Uh, Instead of uh, breakthroughs by the Ukrainians triggering a nuclear escalation, I think really uh, the saber rattling from Putin and uh, his inner circle have been connected to perceptions of American weakness or lack of resolve. Uh, Because in the end, the Kremlin believes that if they threaten enough, the West can be pushed off of its political objectives. And so the saber rattling, the tough talk, we saw it again with the speech that Uh, President Putin just delivered, uh, where he announced the suspension of the New START uh, arms control agreement, is an attempt to influence the West and to force us, in effect, to self-deter ourselves. 
maybe the nuclear component uh, that I that I worry about the most. Um, it's it's less that the uh, that the Russians in sort of a suicidal act bringing NATO or the United States into the conflict and really uh, bringing Western power to bear, uh, which would be a problem for the Russians. After all, they're barely able to make progress in the Donbass against the Ukrainians, let alone against NATO. But, but what I really worry about is uh, that the implications of American and Western self-deterrence for nuclear proliferation. If you're a third country, not Russia, uh, not Ukraine or the United States, but a third country outside of this conflict region, and you look at events, you say to yourself, the Ukrainians uh, who had nuclear weapons stationed on their territory gave those up uh, in the Budapest Memorandum of 1994 for some loose guarantees of being part of uh, a free and open and sovereign Europe. Uh, the Russians who have nuclear weapons are able to threaten the West and get the Americans off of their uh, lines. The West clearly has been hesitant to supply long-range precision strikes, even battle tanks, uh, until recently on account of uh, Putin's saber-rattling. And on top of that, uh, one country that is hurtling toward the nuclear threshold and is on the cusp of, of enriching to 90%, so weapons-grade uranium, the Iranians outside of the region face few, if any, costs for doing so. The lesson might be, I too need nuclear weapons in this new era. So American presidents really dating back to Kennedy have worried about a nuclear cascade, and perhaps that's, that's, that's a perennial worry of the United States and we overdo it. But I worry about uh, a nuclear proliferation unleashed not by America pushing too aggressively for the Ukrainians, but in fact being self-deterred by the Russians. It seems like what you're saying is that the more prominent American politicians in particular, obviously there's a global component here, but looking at this domestically, just to try and narrow the scope for a second, the more prominent American politicians and political leaders worry openly, loudly about the concern that too much aid to Ukraine could push Russia into using nuclear weapons, you're saying that they have it backwards, that the best way to answer Russia's saber rattling, the best way to ensure that Russia doesn't cross some unthinkable line is to make clear that while we may not put troops on the ground in Ukraine, we will continue to do everything we can with money and uh, materiel to help Ukraine resist the invasion and expel the Russians and, and maintain their territorial integrity. Right. I mean, Putin has inverted the logic of nuclear weapons. Traditionally, aside from the example of the North Koreans, they're thought of as a defensive deterrent in case of attack onto your sovereign territory. Uh, they would be a last resort. Um, that's generally, I think, the public perception and how statesmen have thought about nuclear weapons. But Putin here is using them offensively uh, to threaten the West and to push the U.S. off of our lines. I think uh, statements of resolve, a willingness to support Ukraine, um, is, is just the way to show to Putin there is no way out of this. Uh, you cannot threaten nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons use and get us to alter uh, our, our strategic direction. And by the way, I would just add, if you speak to Western intelligence uh, officials and the Ukrainians themselves, and I happened to be there late last year in November and December, the use of nuclear weapons would obviously be an event of enormous significance. It would be the first use since the Americans, is the only country to use them to date, dropped two bombs on Japan at the end of World War II. It would not change uh, the battlefield dynamic in Ukraine. The Ukrainians would continue to fight. They would still resist. 
Uh, it's unclear that the, the Russians would know how to actually fight in a contaminated environment, that they would be able to use a, a nuclear weapon or uh, chemical or biological weapons to break through. And so uh, all it would do, if from the point of view, I think, of the Kremlin, is probably push non-aligned, neutral, or allied countries into a forced condemnation of Russia. And there, of course, we get to the vast reservoir of power that I think um, the Russians are hoping to entice, if not already relying on, in uh, China uh, and to a certain extent also India. So, uh, you know, for Putin, I, I, don't think, um, I don't think, as I said, he's suicidal. Um, uh, I think he, he has to date uh, observed the logic of nuclear deterrence. Um, and if, as the old Leninist saying goes, the adage is true, um, if you have a bayonet, push so long as you experience mush, and once you hit steel, withdraw. I think the Russians just need to feel American steel um, and then uh, uh, we will be able to, I think, build a more stable dynamic uh, over the nuclear weapons front. Peter, I think this is fascinating and, and so interesting to explain because today some of the loudest voices of concern, you know, I, I think in an earlier conversation with you, I would use the term peaceniks, which is sort of a throwback to the old days of the Cold War, when people that were on the left were often criticized by those on the right as aiding and abetting uh, tyrants by saying the United States should butt out. And every time the tyrants would threaten, of course, they'd say, oh, that we're, we're goading them on, we're instigating them, we're going to cause an unnecessary war. A lot of those voices right now are actually coming from the right, um, both from some potential presidential candidates, or at least one of them, and also from Republicans on Capitol Hill who question whether or not we should continue to fund Ukraine's war effort for fear of, of pushing the Russians too far. Some even blame the invasion on U.S. support for NATO and NATO's expansion. Somehow the Russians felt cornered. I think one of the questions that, is a, that needs to be answered that is a part of that is, can we still assume or can we still say, based on what we know, that this is a line Putin rationally would not cross? A lot of People from all persuasions, political persuasions, were saying that Putin Putin was only saber-rattling when he threatened to invade Ukraine writ large because he knew that it would be a bad idea. He didn't actually intend to hurt the Russian economy, make the Russians a pariah um, around the world. Um, and therefore, he was just trying to extract concessions from the West. And lo and behold... One year later, it's a full-scale invasion that's been going on uh, for this long. So what's the best way to understand Putin? Well, if I knew what was going on in Vladimir Putin's mind, uh, we'd be having this conversation in the Oval Office. So it's a little bit difficult to predict exactly uh, how he calculates and, and, and trades off his decision-making. But um, I, I think my broader message is that we should not allow the specter or threat of Putin's nuclear weapons use to push us off of our own strategy because the negative externalities are even worse uh, in that instance. So um, the interests in play in Ukraine, to my mind, are enormous. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce recently released new data. I think 45 or 46 US states export more to Europe than to China. The foreign direct investment flows between Europe and the United States run into the trillions of US dollars. Peace and stability, and certainly American prosperity, is connected to a similar peace and stability on the European continent. And to allow Putin 
uh, to push through in Ukraine all the way up to the doorsteps of NATO, potentially emboldening him to go even further, I think would uh, be not only problematic for those who, uh, from the Halicon days of, the, of George W. Bush's second inaugural, talk about democracy and freedom around the world, but also the Trumpists who have America first in mind. American interests themselves would be badly damaged. As to your broader point about isolationism, this, of course, has a long tradition in American politics. I think it was dealt a really serious blow on December 7th, 1941 at Pearl Harbor and sort of lay dormant for decades, uh, especially during the Cold War. But um, it's made a comeback in a way, in part because of our own failings in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And so there's a certain war wariness. Layered on top of that, I think, with the Republican right is the unique dynamic of, of Russia. Um, for four years under Donald Trump, there was talk about collusion between Trump and Russia. And in the end, it turned out to be more or less a nothing burger. And so now we're hearing the Russians are coming yet again. They really are coming this time. But um, I think some Republicans can be forgiven to having some skepticism uh, when they hear the same voices who talked about Russia collusion, not talking about the Russians uh, coming yet again. And, you know, Putin plays to this very cleverly. He um, snarls at his immediate neighbors, but then reaches a hand across uh, to American and European conservatives and says, I'm a man of traditional values. His speech the other day was chock full of LGBTQ rights criticisms. Uh, he very cleverly, in one sanctions move, designated Hunter Biden, Hillary Clinton, uh, and I think maybe Tony Blinken uh, for sanctions, as if they hold any assets in Russia. But the point, the signal being sent is, I'm with you against the decadent uh, uh, left and against the European Union. But of course, we should remember the biggest ally and partner we have in Ukraine are the Poles, who have a national conservative government at the top. Um, and this is a fight for sovereignty of Ukraine's borders. Uh, it's a fight for, uh, for, for uh, American interests. And the critique that I hear, you know, Joe Biden ignores the train wreck in, in Ohio or is, uh, is insufficiently robust on our border. So why is he traveling to Kiev? I would just say, you know, for anybody listening to this, to take my own example, I'm both a father and a professional, and the two complement one another. You have to go to work to make money to support your family, uh, and your family also gives you a reason uh, to kind of do the jobs you do and, and to be a professional. So in particular for a superpower, you, you cannot just focus on one thing, but I think you have to have a, a multifaceted view of your obligations both to yourself and to the world, and they complement one another and make you stronger. So. Uh, to the left, um, and there's a progressive caucus in the, in, in, in the American Congress, and to the right, and there's some isolationist tendencies there. They both want to pull back from the world, perhaps for different reasons, but I think it would be really, really damaging to our own interests, to our own prosperity. And in the end, uh, the, Russians, um, uh, uh, the Russians and the Chinese are coming, and I think it's important that we meet them and compete with them um, um, in, in these regions of the world and not just wait kind of on American shores for us to be basically in, the, in a very bad and negative position to be able to take them on. How much does it matter that Vladimir Putin has suspended Russia's participation in the START, I think we now call it the new, although it's not so new anymore, the new START treaty uh, that's designed to, you know, keep the U.S. and, and Russia on an even keel in regard to their nuclear weapons programs? Well, to me, it marks the end of the uh, Cold War, the really final blow, the funeral of the Cold War order, because it's a bilateral deal between Moscow and Washington. It was negotiated during the Obama administration and extended in the first week of the Biden administration. And uh, uh, it was criticized, especially by Republicans, because it is just that, a bilateral 
agreement. But we're no longer in a bilateral world. We're really, uh, in particular, in nuclear arms control. And this is a, a, a deal that deals with strategic systems. So submarine launch ballistic missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, bombers. In that domain of nuclear weapons, there are three powers in the world, China, Russia, and the United States. And it's hard for me to think that any American president in the future is going to be able to get Senate ratification for a deal that doesn't include the Chinese. And to date, the Chinese have shown zero interest in arms control talks. Uh, every few months, we open up the pages of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal with new reports about dramatic breakthroughs, both in numbers and in quality of uh, Chinese nuclear weapons. And officials express shock and surprise at their tremendous advances. So uh, this is no longer just a Russian-American world. Uh, in a way, it was one of the last forums or formats where the Russians could talk to the Americans at eye level. Um, and so in that sense, the Russians somewhat liked it. But um, this is Putin trying to, again, coerce Biden administration who liked this deal and wanted to keep it alive uh, for at least the next three years. It was extended for five years in January of 2021. And I just hope the administration, uh, who some might cynically say has been uh, not entirely tough on the Russians because they still want Russian cooperation on other files like the Iran nuclear deal, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council, on arms control. John Kerry would like climate change cooperation with the Russians. Um, I just hope the Biden administration um, takes a suspension in stride and, and continues on. With the McDonald's app, you can get your favorite thing delivered to your door. So if you were looking for a reason to skip washing those dishes you left in the sink, consider this a sign. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Right now, get $0 delivery fee with any purchase of $15 or more, only in the app. At participating McDonald's, minimum purchase excludes tax and service fees. Delivery prices may be higher than in restaurants. Other fees may apply, not valid with any other offer, discount, or coupon. We'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
Also, thought it was important to talk about the state of the American uh, nuclear weapons program. There's been talk over the past several years that the program needs to be modernized, upgraded. Do we still have a program that's capable of deterrence and working if we decided we needed to use it? Because it's it's one of those things where, you know, people assume that these weapons were made, we have enough to blow the world up, a, you know, however many times older, over. That was always the cliche. But, you know, you can't just leave these things in a, in a silo and let them rust. And, and obviously, countries like China, who are only recent nuclear powers, have more updated, just more current weapons. So what is the state of our, our, our program? And is it still effective or does it need investment and, and an overhaul? Nuclear modernization, as it's called, is ongoing. But uh, to connect this to your last question, the deal in Washington has always been uh, that the Democrats who like arms control but don't necessarily want to invest in nuclear modernization will meet the Republicans halfway who like nuclear modernization but are skeptical of arms control. Uh, the reason Republicans have been skeptical of arms control, and quite frankly, I, I share this viewpoint, is because arms control tends to be available to you when you least need it, but not available to you when you need it most. And by that, I mean the U.S. could easily forge an arms control deal with like Canada or Great Britain or France because these are liberal democratic partners who don't cheat, who allow for inspections, uh, who allow for regular negotiations. But those countries whom you need it with most, meaning our adversaries or outright enemies, in the case of the Russians or the Chinese, are perennial cheaters. They're not trustworthy. Uh, the Iranians uh, play this game all the time with the IAEA. This is the Viennese-based UN agency charged with carrying out inspection regimes. And so uh, the deal has been in Washington that um, the Republicans will agree to some arms control, but there has to be money for modernization. The New START agreement uh, was passed uh, after a negotiation between John Kyle, then the senator from Arizona, since retired, kind of an arms control expert, who said, fine, we'll pass New START, we'll ratify it in the Senate, but in return for that, we need monies. Since then, uh, the Obama administration walked back some of that money a little bit, but it did flow, and we're now in the process of modernizing the nuclear triad, as it's called. My um, a concern or worry, and, and this came up briefly during part of the Trump administration, is, as you put it, how reliable are systems that you don't test? And because uh, we've refused to test um, in acknowledgement of the nuclear test ban treaty and, and the norm that's been established for testing, uh, you know, we've done all sorts of computer simulations and, and other high-tech solutions to assure ourselves that these weapons do work. But they've been sitting, as you put it, in a silo um, or on a submarine or on a bomber in the air, and um, and uh, with and we've trusted that they will work. And of course, them working and the certainty uh, that that should signal is crucial to deterrence, because otherwise, uh, you don't have much of a military deterrent. So uh, every once in a while, there's a debate that pops up about uh, about testing. The Biden administration is not going to test um, um, for 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 reasons that I just pointed out. And uh, the modernization process is ongoing, but some skeptics would say it's a bit too slow. All right, I'm going to try and tie two things together here uh, that I think can go together. Uh, but, you know, you can check my work. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that um, in, in covering foreign policy and national security, every once in a while, an American official, a military official, a diplomatic official 
will, to use the cliche, say the quiet part out loud. Now, it doesn't mean the quiet part's necessarily true, but for instance, we was recently in the past several weeks, an American general, and I'm forgetting his name, uh, predicted or worried openly that we're likely to be in a war, a shooting war with China in the next three to five years, something like that. He was roundly rebuked. You know, there was, you know, it's not that he said or revealed classified information as far as we know, but he gave an opinion that was very provocative because he's not just some, you know, pundit like me, but, but um, an American, senior American military fig- figure. I bring that up to ask you these two questions. One, over the past couple of decades, we haven't talked much about the prospect for nuclear war the way we did in the middle of the Cold War, and, and in my memory, particularly the 70s and the 80s. Um, but I'm wondering how much of a concern some form of, of a nuclear conflict or use of nuclear weapons is discussed in, in government circles quietly how much of a concern there is, not just make sure everything works right and let's not take chances, but is there, have there been quiet concerns about the prospects for the use of nuclear weapons? And which gets me around to my second, my related question. We talk a lot about Vladimir Putin in Russia, but increasingly we look at our major competitor and major adversary as China. And China is still a growing power, not a receding power. How much do American government officials worry about the use of nuclear weapons? And how much might they worry or should we be worried about a conflict with China where nuclear weapons are used? Well, you referenced um, General Minahan from uh, Mobility Command who who, uh, told his troops be ready to fight by 2025, which is just around the corner. On the other hand, we had Admiral Davidson just a, a few years ago in front of Congress uh, uh, pinpoint the year 2027. Eli Ratner, the Assistant Secretary of Defense, talked about pushing out the Taiwan contingency uh, as far as possible past this decade. And then Colin Call, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, uh, had a very sanguine assessment uh, for Defense News just, I think, a week or two ago where he spoke about um, basically the Chinese being deterred and we don't have to worry about a Chinese uh, move on Taiwan. I say all of that just to drive home the point that there seems to be no real consensus in U.S. government about the prospects or likelihood of uh, the Chinese moving on Taiwan. But on nuclear weapons, I worry, much like on Russia policy, that there isn't the same intellectual infrastructure scaffolding in place in the United States as there are on some other issues. I'm 40 years old, and all of my classmates from graduate school wanted to study Arabic and learn about insurgencies and really shaped by Iraq and Afghanistan, study the Middle East. But when you now go to these panels around town or talk to people who specialize in Russia affairs, there's really almost like a a donut rule, right? There's a lot of young new analysts who see the importance of Europe and Russia. Then there's not a lot of mid-level and mid-career expertise. And then there are some, dare I say, almost dinosaurs from the Cold War who have aged a bit, might not even be professionally active anymore, but in the 60s and 70s wrote extensively about, about Russia. And so catching up on expertise there, I think, is, is really important. And the same really applies to nuclear weapons. 
in the 90s and the 2000s, even the 2010s, nuclear weapons were considered perhaps even a thing of the past. You'll remember uh, the rush to global zero. This is a campaign President Obama uh, announced, I believe, in a major speech in Prague where he wanted to eliminate uh, nuclear weapons from the world. That, in retrospect, seems like a extremely Pollyannish and uh, almost fanciful desire and hope, quaint in a way, uh, a, a time that really is far in the past and receding and receding quickly. And so we have to build up the expertise, I think, also, again, on nuclear deterrence, on nuclear systems, on nuclear weapons, and their entire careers to be made there if one has it. Um, in the government, um, uh, I think probably mirrors some of the public debate. Of course, we have a Pentagon and a military and their analysts and, and, and actors there, including in our intelligence community that, that um, probably have a bit more robust understanding than some of our public debate. But I worry, you know, it's not all that different than what you see in think tanks and in kind of the public intellectual community and the commentary community. So uh, yeah, this is an urgent area. It's, it's, as we said at the outset, the most important of all areas because a nuclear escalation leading to cataclysm means potential global holocaust, which uh, can be no one's interest. And so I think it's important that we relearn the lessons of the founder of Hudson Institute, Herman Kahn, who wrote about limited nuclear war and its implications, Thomas Schelling, who of course is the father of, of deterrence and some of these theories and, uh, and, and go down that path. And perhaps it's also a reminder of the importance of not just an offense-oriented nuclear regime where we talk about holding each other hostage and being able to, through second strike, destroy another country should it attack us with nuclear weapons, but also defensive systems like missile defense. Um, Reagan was, was famously mocked for Star Wars. Now we know that uh, it, it drove up Soviet spending, potentially leading or at least contributing to Soviet bankruptcy. George W. Bush tried to re-resurrect um, uh, uh, a missile defense system in the early 2000s and pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile defense treaty um, uh, in 2001-2002. And uh, I think we should probably be attempting to build systems that can at least deter against regional actors like the Iranians and, uh, and the North Koreans. And finally, um, I wanted to kind of touch on those rogue nations uh, nations, we, we look at the great powers or the rising powers and we worry about conflict with them for good reason. How c concerned should Americans be that we're dealing with countries like Iran and North Korea that may have different incentive structures than we do? We can look at a, a competition with Russia and China and we can see all of the ways in which it doesn't have to happen because there are power spheres of power that they may not want to jeopardize. I look at some of these rogue nations that don't really have spheres of power and, and simply look at the world differently than, than, than we do, than the West does, and, and wonder sometimes if we don't worry enough about the threats they pose, yet maybe they just enjoy the saber rattling. How, how do you look at that? Well, it may be time for us to consider retiring the word rogue because it suggests that it's an actor outside of the accepted international system behaving against accepted rules. But in truth, I think we're moving towards a world in which there is an American-led alliance system in the Asia-Pacific. There are big allies like the Japanese, the Australians, the Koreans. Um, and in Europe, of course, anchored through NATO, big uh, American allies who 
work with us and support us, like um, first and foremost, uh, the British. Um, but, but, but there's another world uh, forming. Uh, there's an axis, I think, uh, building between Moscow, uh, Iran, Tehran, and Beijing. Um, North Korea might be an appendage of that as well. Uh, the North Koreans are delivering ammunition to the Russians. There's some evidence that they're rebuilding some of the infrastructure that re, uh, connects North Korea to Russia. We know that the Chinese are buying discounted Russian energy to help the Russian economy stay afloat. Tony Blinken warned at the Munich Security Conference just recently that the Chinese may be considering actually supplying weapons uh, to the Russians. And the Iranian-Russian pipeline for weapon systems is rather dramatic. Everyone focuses on the drones that the Iranians are sending to uh, the Russians, which the Russians are using to attack basically the eastern flank of NATO uh, in Ukraine. But think about what the Iranians might get in return. Advanced fighter jets, perhaps an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile capability. So you can marry their nuclear program with a delivery vehicle that threatens the continental United States. Uh, this could mean a major upgrade of, uh, of, of Iran and Iran's uh, military capability. And uh, my colleagues, Mike Duran and John Kasapolo here at Hudson have recently penned a great article I'd encourage everyone to look at called Overmatch, um, which talks about the new, the new uh, weapon systems uh, that the Iranians have, in particular drones, which can overwhelm uh, defensives in the region. Or if they don't overwhelm them, it creates a political economy mismatch because a drone that costs tens of thousands of dollars, you or I, David, could afford to buy a few of these, um, is relatively cheap. Whereas the missile defense systems that are fielded, like Patriot batteries, are enormously expensive. And so um, swarming drones, we saw this at first, I think, at a Baghdad hangar where Iranian drones uh, or Iranian proxy drones went at uh, U.S. installations. But since also through Houthi rebels in Yemen who are using Iranian systems to go after um, a G20 economy in, in Saudi Arabia, weapons landing near the Riyadh airport, and the Emirates, a small country, um, in the Gulf, uh, which is a very important financial and uh, a center and energy center, there are drones, you know, swarming around the Burj Khalifa and these these skyscrapers. So some of these countries that traditionally we've taken for granted as part of the American order, they may begin to hedge, seeing that there are now two worlds. Uh, there's a bi there's a bipolar order in a way, or a multipolar order, led, of course, principally by China, which has the economic heft and power to actually uh, make a play for an alternative system. Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, was in Riyadh announcing a new special relationship with the Saudis. Uh, President Biden has, has, has uh, basically stuffed Mohammed bin Salman in a locker for the past year, couldn't even shake his hand on a visit. So the Saudis say, all right, well, we have alternatives now. The Iranians just recently went to Beijing to meet with the Chinese. And so uh, all, all around uh, the globe, while the U.S. Uh, and, and our European allies give up on Russian hydrocarbons and try to go to solar, by the way, the supply chains of which are controlled by the Chinese, the Iranians are, or the Chinese, excuse me, without any natural resources of their own, are forging new relationships with Saudi Arabia and Iran, energy-rich countries. So a new world is forming. Uh, I wish they were just rogues, which we could isolate and say uh, uh, they're, they are, they're almost... Uh, they're almost dead-enders, as Rumsfeld famously put it uh, in, the, in the days of the Iraq insurgency. But in fact, I think they're part of a, a real challenging system that's taking on the U.S., and they're going to be tough decades ahead. Peter Rao is a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for dropping by the dispatch. Thanks for having me.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.